From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, managing keratoconus without keratoplasty at ESCRS. Once we've established that a patient has from frust or is questionably normal, how do we pick up that early change in order to make that decision to intervene with cross-linking? First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the ESCRS annual meeting in London. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Jorge Alio on using intrastromal rings for keratoconus management and from John Canalopoulos on when to crosslink. But first, a listener comment from Stephen Maynell in Liss, Hampshire, United Kingdom. Hi, Josh. I really enjoyed March 2015's podcast from as seen from here about the stability of LASIK 16 years outcome study by Dr. Alio. I work in a busy optometry practice and I thought I could offer some examples of how regression changes by age. He was saying how there could be a myopic axial increase post LASIK. Well, he said in his study there are more ladies than men. It's about 50-50 here and happens quickly with increasing risk if you're younger. Maybe the original causes of myopia reawaken and progresses as once it starts. It just gets more. Myopia increases in spurts, of course, and perhaps you need to ask about family history and current lifestyle, as well as stability. The oldest I had with post-lasic myopic axial regression was in his early 30s, and almost certainly associated with intense university studying. So I am finding the risk of myopic regression goes down with age. Maybe when the patient is over 40, the eyes toughen up. I find that refractive stability is the norm, and people are delighted with the op, which gives them a new confidence. However, being over 20 years old and two similar refractions under their belt may not be sufficient to assume myopic stability. I think if we checked for crystalline lens hazing, hypropic peripheral defocus, near-induced transient myopia, and other near-focus issues such as esophoria, and of course family history, then axial myopic regression risk post-classic could be determined more accurately. The other case Dr. Alio mentioned was biomechanical compromise of the cornea, which I find happens in people over the age of 40. It is slowly progressive and happens after a few years of corneal stability. It doesn't go back all the way to the original prescription, but stops about halfway. However, overall, everyone is delighted with their operation, although many do expect regression. It doesn't stop people's happiness with the refractive surgery. 
I'm here with Jorge Alio. Jorge, you know, there, there are times in the context of keratoconus where we have to do penetrating keratoplasty, but it, it's, it's always nicer to have a more conservative option first. Can I get you to talk about your topic today, intrastromal rings for keratoconus? Indeed, yes. We have been in the benefit of getting conservative methods to treat keratoconus in the last 10 years, and one of the most relevant ones is the use of intraconal ring segments. Intraconal ring segments are devices that are implanted inside the cornea in the different diameters and in different depths, but finally they, they are used to mold the cornea into a better shape, improving the vision of the patient, and most of the cases as well the refraction. Uh, these elements have been used empirically so far, and at this moment the use is quite extended, and we need uh, to, uh, to get better outcomes based on predictable uh, techniques and the better use of the rings and better nomograms. Evidently, uh, the intracoronal rings require the, the tunnel and the tunnel can be created manually or with a femtosecond laser. Manually, we have uh, many biases and that depends on the surgeon's skill, depends on the blade and depends on the, cor on the corneal elasticity and the thickness as well, which is variable in keratoconus. But uh, the, the femtosecond lasers today, in modern terms, can really make all this surgery more, much more precise. There was no evidence whether we were improving or not the outcomes of intracoronal ring segments. And the evidence that I'm going to provide today has been published in ophthalmology by us. So it is it's material that in part has been published and really demonstrates that the refractive, the keratometric and the, the, and the visual outcomes are improved by the use of intracoronal laser creating tunnels for the use and the implant of intracoronal ring segments. Can you talk about this, this study a little bit, please? Yes, this study was a study in over 100 cases in which we either perform manual or femtosecond dissection and we implanted, uh, following the identical nomogram uh, in, in a consecutive series of cases, intracoronal ring segments of keratin. All cases were keratin. And we could uh, have the evidence at the end of the study uh, by statistical uh, significant differences that we get better refractive outcomes in terms of improvement. The best quality of visual acuity improved in the cases uh, in which the femtosecond laser was used in a significantly better amount than in manual uh, technique. And the coronal operations were also reduced in a better way and significantly better than with the manual technique. I think that this, uh, this is the, the end of the story whether manual or fento is better. Some uh, authors have been in the debate whether to manual dissection was better because it was creating a blunt dissection of the cornea and the fento second laser was really cutting the, the corneal fibers but finally what we get is a more precise surgery, more controllable. We have the, the, the thickness of the cornea that is a, a target for the fento second ablation is exactly the one that you get. You can customize depending on the on the things of the cornea with some of the modern femtosecond lasers and I think that there is no debate that femtosecond laser is, a, is the tool to implant and to have less complications with the intracoronal resemblance. One of the most relevant findings of the study is that the level of complications that was for, uh, uh, for, uh, happening following the manual uh, implantation happened to be up to 10% of the cases, different type of complications while it was only 3% of the cases in the manual which makes a huge difference. So for the reasons of predictability better outcomes, better vision, and less complications, femtosecond laser is the winner. And in the context of your, your own clinical practice, have you stopped doing manual pockets? You're uh, just using femto for this? Absolutely. We, we cancelled the manual uh, dissector about uh, five years ago. No longer we use it. Uh, it is dangerous. You can penetrate the cornea uh, from the back and from the front. You have an uneven dissection. And even that is a, a, a very good tool in the, in the hands of the surgeons that have no access to femtosecond laser. Uh, devices, definitely it is less than optimal for the use of the intracoronary segments. Oh, this is great stuff. 
Jorge, thank you very much for, for being here and for being so generous with your time with us today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'm here with John Canalopoulos. John, I think that I think, I guess we all think that cross-linking is an, an exciting and is a, a really, really promising thing with the treatment of keratoconus. I've, I have some real practical questions for, for you, not dealing so much with the, the different protocols, but first of all, what are, where, where are we diagnostically with detecting keratoconus? And second of all, let's say that I detect someone with keratoconus that is subclinical or is barely clinical. I'm not talking about form, form first, I'm talking about genuine keratoconus, right. but that, that they're not that, that terribly sim symptomatic. When should I be thinking about going to cross-linking? How, right. how, how mild? Right. Uh, thank you, Josh. These are really, really uh, hot questions. Uh, in my mind, with my experience in keratoconus, and it's something that I've devoted uh, a large part of my practice the last 20 years, uh, the big question is we are diagnosing keratoconus based on curvature. We're all familiar with um, topography, tomography, etc., and pachymetry. The big question in my mind is which comes first? Whether in keratoconus we have first a change in curvature, which results then in change in pachymetry, or vice versa. And, and this is an, a, a very sensitive area as far as uh, addressing and assessing the diagnostics that are out there. Um, I think that uh, the standard criteria that we use, and even today, uh, the most standard criteria that are accepted in literature are the amsler krumai criteria, appear to be a little bit outdated for the technology that's available out there. I think there's a lot of uh, interplay between normal and from frust and early keratoconus. And it's, it's greatly important, uh, especially for the second question that you asked, once we've established that a patient has from frust or is questionably normal, for instance, the quote-unquote normal eye, uh, normal other eye of a patient who has keratoconus in one eye, how do we pick up that early change in order to make that decision to intervene with cross-linking? Um, we've worked in many models and we really respect uh, uh, Ambrosio's and Bellin's work on um, uh, sensitizing us with pachymetry changes um, and, uh, and uh, symmetry in the cornea. But we think that uh, the epithelium has a very, very strong story to tell us. In those very early suspect eyes, normal eyes by any other means, topography, pachymetry, uh, tomography, the epithelium may have a very significant story to tell us. And we're presenting a lot of that uh, data in this meeting. And I think that once OCT is able to bring into every ophthalmologist's office the ability to get pachymetry maps and their symmetry in the cornea and easy epithelial maps, uh, we may be able to, to have a, a tighter and more sensitive way to diagnose keratoconus early. Now, as far as answering the, the second question, when do we uh, apply cross-linking? Whenever we fear there'll be progression or whenever we have established progression. I think that every, uh, in most of the world, any person who's under 35, 40, uh, is uh, uh, suspicious about progressing, especially the closer they get to puberty. So uh, if I see somebody under 20 for the first time and I see form frus keratoconus, I cannot call it from frus keratoconus because uh, it's at an age where we expect it to change. So we want to follow that patient closely. If that option is not there, I would recommend collagen cross-linking. Uh, if the patient is in the next decade, 20 to 30, uh, same things apply, but less strictly. 
Uh, and somebody who's over 30, in my opinion, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more relaxed. I want to see that patient every year, every uh, year and a half. If it's a female patient who is going to go through a pregnancy, we know that that may uh, wake up uh, progression. And in people over 40, I'm, I'm much more comfortable, but uh, I still want to see them every two, three years or if, there, or if there's any change. And again, these criteria are meant for when I will make the decision to intervene with collagen cross-linking. Right, so you, 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 you want to, um, to be able to demonstrate that there's some progression before you, you cross-link. The younger the patient is, the more nervous you, you are, and the less change there has to be to, to raise a red flag to say this is someone who uh, needs treatment. Does that sound fair? It, it sounds fair, but I, I have to say that most surgeons in Europe will agree with me that if I, if I evaluate a teenager or somebody who's in their early 20s and has reached the level of keratoconus 1 on Amsler Krumer right. criteria, then I would recommend intervening. If I see a very mild from Frus case, I may wait yeah. for six months. Uh, now, these criteria become a little laxer if we go over 25 and over 30 and 35. Yeah, yeah the, these are really, really great guidelines and, and I you know I want to thank you very much for sharing them and, and again for being so generous with oh, your sure, time with us sure. today. Thank you Josh. Jorge Alio is professor and chairman of ophthalmology at the University of Alicante and the University of Miguel Hernandez de Elche. John Kenalopoulos is professor of ophthalmology at the NYU School of Medicine in New York, New York and director of the Laser Vision Institute in Athens, Greece. Ask questions of Dr. Alio, Dr. Kenalopoulos, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your comments or questions at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.